Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. I grew up going to the YMCA, the Southeast YMCA in Montgomery, Alabama. It was right next door to Danley School and right across the street from Jefferson Davis High School, where I went to high school, where I spent time in detention in high school, <laughs> and retract. Anybody else have detention and retract? Uh, Kenny, I, all right, Kenny did? Pal, you didn't have to raise your hand, Dad. Everybody in here knows that you spent lots of time in the principal's office. He had his own Billy McGee seat. Over there in the corner. And by the way, last week I get home to find out that my father went around telling everybody that he was celebrating today because it was Handsome Billy Day. <laughs> so if he said that to you last week, um, I'm, I apologize, first off. And secondly, I would like to say, I'm just sorry that he couldn't celebrate Handsome Billy Day. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh, he got a pound cake out of his celebrating of Handsome Billy Day. Thank you, Miss Beverly. That is awesome. Jeez. Anyway, where was I? Southeast Y, detention, that's where I was. Okay, so I spent a a lot of time right there at this, this little section of Montgomery where I grew up. My father actually had an office there at Southeast Y for a long time. And we would go up there and we would play kickball in the gym, which was an awesome thing. You would you'd spend the afternoon uh, playing basketball, pickup games, basketball, free swim. Oh, free swim was the best. Uh, and then you would you'd do free swim, and then you might go and play on the tennis courts. It was just a, it was all day, every day as a kid growing up, as a, as a child. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was just, everyone was there. It was the place to be. It, it was the center of my universe for a while. And if you grew up kind of in my time, you might have had an experience similar to that. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't unusual for there to be, I don't know, hundreds of kids coming in and out of that YMCA during a day. And they even had like the old centipede game, and they had, uh, or the centipede game, it was the ball, right? Is that right? They had Galaga, all of those things, they had a, they had the video machine games up there, and so kids brought quarters and dollars, and, and they had the change machine, and they had the, uh, they had the, the, um, the old-timey uh, where you punch in A-10, and you get your hot fries, or you put in, or you put in B-6, and you get your Snickers bar. You had the old vending machines there, and so kids had money all over them coming up there, and let me tell you something. There is nothing better than getting out of afternoon free swim with pruned fingers and the smell of chlorine and your hand still dripping with water that's chlorinated and eating hot fries. There's something about that combo that just takes me right back to my childhood. One day, while I was up there and I was about to buy my hot fries and my Coca-Cola out of the vending machine, I looked down and behold, there it was, a $10 bill. 
Now, let me tell you something. I'm $10 bill equals $100 bill old. You know what I'm saying? So $10 back then was like $100 today. $10 went a long way when I was a kid. So when I saw that $10 bill, I had an epiphany. God loves me. And he gave me this $10 bill. And I reach down and I pick it up. Slide it in my pocket. And it was wet and my pants were wet and it didn't matter. Slid it in that pocket, that wet, sticky $10 bill. And I was like, man, God bless me today. Thank you, Jesus. And then it hit me. So then my next thought was, I know I should give it to that teenager working the counter. But they're probably going to keep it themselves. And they're probably going to do something bad with it, like buy cigarettes. (laughs) Or do something their parents tell them not to. And after all, God gave it to me. And this will get hot fries and Cokes for weeks. I won't have to ask my parents for anything. And I begin to justify the $10 staying in my pocket because of the evilness behind the counter. How often do we justify? And how often do we take things like that and we say, oh, look what... God has done. Isn't this good? And we baptize it with the goodness of God when really, maybe, eh. Today we're going to look at a story again of David as we follow his life. And we're going to look at how David responds to situations versus Saul as we have done for the last few weeks. But this one is particularly interesting to me, and I think it's challenging for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 23, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. David saves a city. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Ka'alah, and are robbing the, front, the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Ka'alah. Pretty clear, right? There's this city. The Philistines have come, and they're robbing them of the grain. What's significant about that, not rhetorical? What's significant about the Philistines stealing grain? Okay, let me make it real simple. No grain, no eat. If you followed what's going on in the Ukraine, you know that there are whole fields, whole sections of Ukraine that have been devastated, that produce wheat, and it's having a huge global impact on being able to feed people. That's this kind of thing. The Philistines are coming in and saying, 
eh, all that grain that you've worked all year growing and looking after, not only have you grown it, planted it and grown it, not only have you harvested it, you've now separated it out and it is ready. It is edible as it is. It is, all we have to do is grind it if we want to make powder and make it into bread or we can eat it like, you know, what are those nasty grape nuts? Isn't that what they're called? You know, you can eat it like that, or, or I actually like grape nuts. Anybody else like grape nuts? Yes. Okay, good. I actually do like it, but that's what it would be like, you know, grape nuts on the floor there. And so they're coming in, they're going to take all of that, and, it's, and there's, nothing, there's nothing for them to eat. It was, the very, it, was, it was the very basic of life for them. And so David says, all right, God, I know this might not be my business, but should I go help? And God says, yes. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah now. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Now, to understand the significance of this particular verse, you have to understand who the men are in David's life now. To do that, you actually have to go back a chapter to chapter 22. And it says that when David was in hiding, his brothers and all his fathers, this is verse 1 and 2, heard it, and they went down there to him. So his brothers and his father, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in their soul. They gathered to him. Oh, there it is. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. That's who's with David. The A-team, right? This is actually more like the Bad News Bears. And if you don't know that reference, go back and watch it. It's, or maybe not. It's probably not that good, but as a kid, I thought it was a great movie. They're the bad, new bear, bad news bears. They, they are not the A-team. They're not fighters. They're not trained. These are the people who hate Saul because of things he's done to them. They're bitter towards him. Maybe because he killed their family members. Maybe because he stole money from them. Maybe because he was just despicable. But this is a group of people who aren't well-trained and well-organized other than David as their leader. And so they come to him, this non-A-team, this people who don't get picked at at uh, recess to be on a team. These are the leftovers, right? These people come to him and say, David, I don't think we need to be going fighting the Philistines, the well-heeled army, the ones with weapons that we don't have, the ones with military prowess, the ones who are actually a fighting regiment. These are warriors. So I don't think we ought to go. Just let's be real here. Take a step back, David, and think about this. You're asking us, I mean, look at us, to go and fight them? And so David's like, yeah, let me ask God again here. Verse 4, then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise and go down to Keilah. For I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went 
and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kaelah. Kaelah. Sorry. So David, with this group of untrained people who weren't really excited about fighting in the first place, go and they defeat the Philistines, so much so that they strike a great blow and they steal all their cattle. Now, here's what's strange. They had cattle. What does that mean? People don't really know what it means. It could mean a few things. It could mean that they brought their cattle to feed on the grain to fatten them up. It could mean that they brought the cattle because there was so much grain that they were going to put the grain in sacks and throw it on the back of the cattle and take it with them. It could mean that this was a much bigger process for them and they were taking the cattle because they were going to slaughter cattle as they go to feed the army. We're not real sure why there's cattle there, but there are cattle there. And David not only defeats them, but he steals their candy. <laughs> he punches them in the face and steals their candy. With a group of untrained soldiers, with a group of people who had no business being able to beat the Philistines, with this group of bad news bears. And why? Why was he able to defeat them? I mean, we could say that David was smart. By this time, he had led a number of, he had led a number of little battles, that he had been victorious in those battles, that he was really smart at that by now. But what the author of 1 Samuel wants us to realize is that the thing that made the difference here was that God was on his side, that God was directing him, that it was God that was steering him, and that with God on his side, he was able to do the impossible. Do you hear me? I don't think we appreciate how impossible this is. This is almost like Ukraine defeating Russia, impossible. But God was with David. God had said, no, go do this thing. Verse 6. Now when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Ka'alah, he, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So David defeats the people, the Philistines, drives them out. They're hanging out there at this city. And then all of a sudden, here comes Abiathar, the only priest left, if you remember that from last week. He was the only priest left. He was the only one. And he came with the ephod, which was part of the priestly garb. And that was told Saul that David had come down to Ka'alah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And so Saul finds out that Abiathar and David are in this city, and he's like, hmm, God has given him to me. Now, what's the difference between that and what David did? Think about it for a second. I want to go to this map so you get an idea, the first map here of what this looked like. Y'all can't see that real well. The top part up there is Gibeah. That was the town of Saul. Saul is in that top spot with the flag where you see the line, the, the orange line and the green line come together at the pinnacle there. That's Gibeah. 
Just south of that, you'll see a, na a name there that's hard, really hard to see. That's Jerusalem. The green line is this path all the way down to Ka'alah, where David was, where he beat the Philistines. So Saul had to go from Gibeah all the way down here. Now you're looking at that going, man, that's a long way. Well, it's only about 15 miles. But anyway, he had to go from there to there. 15 miles to show up to find David. Now, I think we learn in this part of Scripture, this part of the Scripture, if you could go back to it now, if you go back to this part of Scripture, you realize that this town that David is in was really not a smart place to be. It was a walled city that has bars, and it's a fortress, and they're inside of this city. So Saul looks at it and says, man, I can go down there, and like I did with Nob, the other city I just destroyed, I can destroy the whole city, I can lay siege to it and kill everybody in the walls, and this is like shooting, shooting fish in a barrel. This is going to be easy. Look what God has done for me. God has given me David, and all I have to do is smite him. But look at that response compared to David's. When David had this decision to make, he asked the Lord, God, is this what you want? Yes. God, are you sure this is what you want? Yes. Okay, I'm all in. Saul, on the other hand, looks at the situation and goes, yep, look what God did for me. But how often do we treat God more like Saul than we do David? Oh, look at this $10 bill that God's given me. I'm going to slide it in my pocket for hot fries and snicker bars. And Mountain Dew. That'll get your afternoon going. How often do we look at situations and go, oh, this must be what God wants for me because it's so good for me. This is exactly what I wanted. Isn't it awesome how God's will lines up with my will every time? Look at this. God has done this great thing for me when really God has done nothing of the such where we try to impose and baptize, where we say, oh yeah, this is what I want, so it must be what God wants. And that's exactly what Saul does, but not David. David inquires of the Lord, and then he goes back and he inquires of the Lord again. He wants to make sure that he is right in line with the will and the work of God, because he realizes that without God, it's all a sham. That without God working and motivating and moving and providing, that it ends badly. And so Saul finds out, and he says, God's given him to my hands. And then Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Ka'alah and to besiege David and his men. Now, here's the crazy thing. Does anybody know how many people he would have called to war here? It has mentioned it somewhere else. We didn't actually, we brushed, glossed over this real quick a couple of weeks ago. Does anybody know the number of men that they're talking about here? 200,000. That's just a little overkill. That's, okay, there's this tiny fortified city. David's in there. We're going to take him out. Bring in the nuclear bomb. It was overkill. 
But that's how deranged and how unhinged Saul had become. So he summons all of these people to go and besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men here in the city surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now, if you're like me, you're like, whoa, time out. These people that he just saved all of their food supplies, they're not going to starve now because David saved them? He saved them. They will turn him over? Yeah, thanks, man. Here you go. (laughs) Thanks so much for saving our grain. Now, here, we've got someone out the back door for you. Just go walking that way, right into the trap. And God says, yes, they're going to do that. So why would they do that? He just saved them. It's because they know what Saul is capable of. Do you see the fear that this guy has created in his people? They remember the story. They had heard the story about how he had destroyed the whole town of priests. And if he's willing to go and destroy priests, what's he going to do to our little town in the middle of nowhere? He's about to bring 200,000 people down here. Yeah, we'll give David up. I don't care. In fact, they might even think to themselves, you know what? They could have had the grain. I would rather live than have grain. I would rather not be tortured by Saul and his men than have grain. David, in fact, that wasn't a very nice thing for you to do because now Saul's mad at us. That might have been what was going through their head, but whatever it was, God said, no, they're going to give you away. And then David and his men, who were now about 600, arose and departed, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped, he gave up the expedition. I want to go to the second picture On the screen. There we go. If you can see uh, the flag on the left where there's an orange, red, and green, can y'all see that that's the city? Ke'elah. And they fled all the way down the red line. They flee all the way down to this other flag, Horish, that's the wilderness of Ziph. They all scattered. Now, what I wanted you to see, and it's not real clear in this. Was that where they were? There we go. Is it where they were? There, that's, that's better. Can y'all see the topography of that? It's all mountains and hills and valleys. It was not easy terrain. So... This is the part, as you see where Jerusalem is, that's all mountainous in its hills. 
And if you go with us next year, you will see where you can stand on the top of a hill outside of Jerusalem, and it's just hills, mountainous, rolling, big hills slash mountains as far as the eye can see. That's what they're living in. They're fleeing through the wilderness. It's not easy. But what's interesting is that the word they use here for fleeing wherever they could go, the root word means to be guided. And so even in the face of terror and fear, they didn't let their fear dictate their next step. They were dependent on God's guidance through their escape. So throughout this whole series, we see one side, David beseeching the Lord and asking, is this really what I'm supposed to do? God says, yes. And he says, okay, are you sure? Yes. He goes and does it. And then he comes back to God and says, okay, I hear that Saul's coming. Is he going to come and kill me? Yes. Are the people here going to give me up? Yes. And so David flees, but instead of fleeing in fear and just going wherever the heck he thought he should go, he was following God's next steps for him. As he went, he was allowing God to direct him. Saul, on the other hand, gives up the expedition because it was never about what God wanted. It was all about what he wanted, what benefited him. And he didn't care if he had to take 200,000 people with him because it was all about him. But how many of us live our lives like that? We want God to bend to our will. And it doesn't matter how it impacts other people. We want to spend our money how we want to spend our money, not thinking about how it impacts other people. We want to drive down Airport Boulevard the way we want to drive down Airport Boulevard and not worry about how it impacts other people. We want to work in such a way that we don't have to exert ourselves too much, ignoring how it impacts the other people we work with. You see where this goes? When we live in our box, we live like Saul. When we live focused on us and what we can get, it's like pulling that $10 bill off the, off the floor at the YMCA and stuffing it in our pocket, and we don't care how it impacts the person who lost it. We care about how, oh, look, this is for me. But that's not how David lived. David, every step of the way, said, God, what do you want? I'm willing to bend to your will. Which one are you most often? I'll admit, I'm more like Saul than I am David. I will admit that I am more like Saul than I am David. But God help me be like David. Show me where I've made me the sinner. Show me where I've taken that $10 bill and stuffed it in my pocket, disregarding everybody else. And that was the thought, by the way, that hit me that day at the YMCA. I knew the kids that were there, and I knew some of them couldn't lose $10. I knew how big a deal that was. And I knew for me, as much as I really wanted that $10 bill, and as much as great stuff I could get with that $10 bill, as many 
fries as I could absolutely imagine, hot fries as I could absolutely imagine, Snicker bars, whatever. Man, I was so excited about it. As good as it would have been for me, I realized how it impacted other people and how it could impact the person who lost it. And so I took that nasty, chlorinated, wet $10 bill, and I went up, and I put it on the counter, and I said, I found this. And the teenager working behind the counter opened the $10 bill up, took a little piece of paper out, found by the machines, paper clipped that. This was before sticky notes. I'm that old. Paper clipped it to it and set it right there. I don't know if the person ever came back and claimed that $10 bill. But as much as I wanted to think it was for me, God convicted me that it wasn't. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.